411 Live. Where you can learn about issues that affect us every day. State of World 411 Live. Real people, real talk. Made to help people in our community in every way. For your Hello, this is the 411 Live, real people, real talk. I'm Beverly Taylor. Well, we made it through another year. 2021 was full of ups, downs, and everything in between. I'm sure you'll agree. Now, we're in the midst of a new year and all of its possibilities. But before we head straight in, we want to look back and review our top 15 podcasts of 2021. At number 15, an episode that makes you wish you had written down some of the pivotal experiences in your life before the details got a little fuzzy with the passage of time. My guest, Cameron Fry, did just that in his published book, Why Bully Me? And get this, he was only 13 years old. Yes, it was, the book is, uh, it's about a school, a school A student who was getting bullied on by another scholar inside his class. And he couldn't figure out why he was getting bullied. And so he was questioning and praying and asking God, why this person has to be bullying me? And I didn't do anything to him. And so what I like about the book, we were able to um, identify the different formats of bullying um, and kind of give a brief description of what those formats actually truly do look like. Because a lot of times we, as parents, as adults, we consider kids, oh, they're just playing. Mm -hmm. But also at the same time, when you look at it, we have the formats of cyberbullying, as well as face-to-face bullying. And a lot of that plays on a person's emotions, you know, and so... And another format is emotional bullying because another scholar, another student, they're bullying someone else out of their emotions. And so I really wanted to highlight the fact and allow adults, parents, guardians to really, truly look at what it really looks like, what bullying truly looks like. Uh, I would tell a student or a child who's been bullied that don't let your emotions take over your body and make sure you pray uh, at night or right when you get up and pray what you want God, pray for what you want God to do for your life and for the rest of your life. Wow. Put the focus in the right place, huh? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I kind of get Cameron into the notion of, hey, it's okay to not try to keep everything up top. Write it down. Whatever your life experience was, whatever took place on that day, write it down. It's okay. And so, therefore, I'm all about journaling (laughs) and just writing everything down. Um, To me, because it's therapeutic, um, I do see it as another form of therapy because sometimes you may not be able to talk to someone about whatever situation that might have taken place or happened. Write it down. Grab a notebook. Say you get a mental health diagnosis, your spouse dies, you need help managing your finances, you're experiencing physical limitations or substance abuse. Sometimes it may feel almost impossible to maneuver on your own. What if there was a place to turn to? 
help available to meet your specific needs. As we learned in number 14, there is Comprehensive Community Services of Jewish Family Services. CCS, also known as the Comprehensive Community Services, Mm -hmm. is a volunteer Medicaid program for adults and youth. So we are working with people who have some kind of a mental health or substance abuse diagnoses. Um, We're a community-based program, so we will serve people anywhere they are in Milwaukee County. It's the reason I do what I do, right? It's that rewarding feeling. And for them, it's um, a light bulb off in their head saying, um, like the the woman today who I just mentioned, she said, hey, just so you know, like you and JFS, I've lost a ton of people and you've been working with me for the past two years. The JFS has, um, and I can almost just started working with them. Um, You guys are my family. Mm. And that in itself is, is something that um, that reaction is, I mean, it's worth a million words. Um, I think the best part of the program is that it's rehabilitative and it focuses on, um, you know, how to teach someone skills to be independent. So all of the services that someone is set up with, it's, it's recovery focused. And so those providers are really going to work with you hands-on, one-on-one to help you build those skills and then hopefully you will no longer need the program so like Margot had said before we want to work ourselves out of a job and when we do that that's the most rewarding feeling very good Sam how about some of those success stories yeah so uh one of them that stands out the most to me was a woman obviously I'm not going to share her name Mm -hmm. but um she was before I was the mental health professional I was a care coordinator for several years And she came into our program and she was really struggling with some paranoid thoughts, some audio hallucinations, not stable on her meds, such severe anxiety. She could not take the bus. She could not be alone with people she didn't know. Um, I just remember going to her intake and she was looking out the window through the blinds before she would let us in. We had to call her and tell her who we were, why we were there, even though she knew we were coming. So it was just so sad. She was being kicked out of the house where she was living. She couldn't work anymore because her mental health had gotten so bad. And she kind of bounced around for, with a couple care coordinators and just, she wasn't really getting anywhere. And then she kind of landed in my lap. I was just like, okay, I'll, I'll just take her, you know, see what I can do, work my magic. I don't know. Um, and over, I worked with her for about a year and a half. And over that year and a half, This woman, I can't even, like, I still, like, want to cry thinking about it. She Mm -hmm. just made so much progress. She was, all it took was one of our services is a rehab, a rehab specialist. So this person came in and just helped her organize her appointments, makes, you know, coaching her on making phone calls, coaching her on calling landlords, coaching her on how to set up transportation. She got to the point, she wasn't quite taking the bus, but she could independently take the medical taxi to and from appointments. She could go to her appointments on her own. She was approved for social security because her mental health had been so significant. So now she had an income. She hadn't had a steady income in over 10 years. She had a stable place to live. She hadn't had, she was chronically homeless. She had been bouncing from place to place. Um, Just even her demeanor, she lost a whole bunch of weight. She was working with a trainer. She was starting to build up strength. Um, her family relationships were getting better. 
She was stable on her meds, wasn't missing her meds, wasn't missing medical or psych appointments, was connected to it there. Oh my gosh. It's just, it was just so rewarding to see because all it took was just a handful of people in her life to point her in the right direction. And she would always say, Sam, thank you so much. Thank you for doing this for me. I'm like, I didn't do it. I just did some referrals. You did all this work on your own and you haven't been able to do that in so long. So it was just, it's just so rewarding. I just like a new woman, (laughs) a whole new woman. She looks different. She looks, she talks different. She holds herself high. That's not special. using anymore. It's just, it's just my favorite story. It's That's one of my special. favorite people to have that, worked with. That is special. That is special. What will your legacy be? How will your life impact others? In number 13, Savad Johnson, Larger Than Life, we learn how Savad saved three drowning girls, wrote a book, was a public speaker, a firefighter, a gifted artist, an avid storyteller, and the loving father of two. His siblings share his incredible story. When you heard that he rushed in to save these three girls, I'm sure you were not even surprised, huh? Definitely not. Uh, It's who he was outside of the fire department. It was his character. Yeah. Uh, He would have done that anyway. Uh, Granted, the fire department does intensify uh, that type of uh, character, but that's just who he's always been. I never imagined that when Savai brought this book to me that he wouldn't be sitting here promoting it himself, you know? And um, so, uh, yeah, the process was something. One minute I am going through his words, but I will say that the gift of that and just thanking God for the gift of that, for his voice to live on, you know, through this book and to hear him speaking through it. Uh, I just, it's a blessing. It's just, it's a, it's a tough situation, but it is, I see the blessings in it. He just was, he, he said that he didn't consider himself a motivational speaker, but more inspiration, mm. you know, because motivation is forcing somebody to do something, but survive definitely was an inspiration. Um, and one thing I do do want to point about out about this book is that it is not about how he died or his death. It is full of life and, and about how he lived, the life that he lived. So if you're looking for something to help you find purpose in life, like you said, and just really think about the legacy that you want to leave behind, becoming a diamond is that quick, practical read. The podcast in the number 12 spot was called Surviving Sexual Childhood Trauma. My guest, April Bentley, endured a crippling lifestyle. One, she says in her book, Don't Rush to Get Old, was designed to destroy her destiny. Get this. She was a drug and alcohol addicted call girl, molested as a toddler, raped as a teenager. But she's an overcomer. Because her present looks nothing like her past, as she says, but God. Mm-hmm. I could do whatever I wanted to do. I was 14. I, she, you know, let it, I'd go over there. She put a little makeup on me. And one day, you know, she began to, her grooming was so subtle. It was so subtle. Um, you know, she'd say things like, you know, you can have anything you want. 
Man will give you anything. Girls are going to be so jealous of you. You'll never have any friends. I wouldn't even try to make friends with girls. They're just going to be jealous of you. Planting those seeds. Yeah. I bet you your friends look at you a certain way. They be jealous. Look at you. And she'd spin me around and show me how pretty I was and how built I was. And all of that. And I was eating that up, you know. Um, and she'd tell me what to say and not to say when a man approached me. Or, you know, you want to have a man. You want you get this and that. You get whatever you want. And one day I remember showing up and she was sitting on the floor. Um, and she was a, a high yellow woman. So she, all of her emotions would show on her face, right? And she mm -hmm. was sitting on the floor. And I remember her nose was really red. And she was like very distraught. And I said, are you okay? And she said, no, I'm not okay. I'm about to lose my house. I don't have any food. My lights are going to get turned off. I don't have any money. And I was just like, oh, man, it's like panic came over me. And I thought, oh, I wish there was something I could do. And she stood up and said, there is. And I was like, oh. And I remember to this day, it was so clear. I thought, first thing went through my mind, I could steal some meat out of my mom's deep freezer. You know, everybody had deep freezers back then, right? right. I could bring her some food. And... Um, she said, you know the guy, but before I could get that out, she said, you know the guy that I cook for sometime down the street? And I said, yeah. She goes, yeah. He'll, he said he'll pay you $200 if you make him breakfast. And I was like, $200? And she said, yeah. You know how to make eggs, don't you? And I said, well, yeah. You know how to make bacon? I was like, well, yeah. That's all you have to do. And I said, oh, I said, but that's a grown man. She said, you trust me, don't you? Now, she had never given me a reason not to trust her. And I just remember saying, yeah, because I did trust her. I did trust her. And she said, that's all you have to do. And it's 8 o'clock in the morning when I'm supposed to be at school. Um, she said, well, here, let me, let me get you dressed. And I was like, well, what's wrong with what I have on? Well, you got to look pretty. That's why he's going to pay you the $200. So she changed my clothes and she put me on these red high heel shoes, this blue jean mini skirt and this red lipstick that every time I see the image, I just, I remember the first thing I said, I look like a hooker. And she said, no, you don't. You look so pretty. And I was like, I do. She was like, yeah. And I was like, oh, you know, that's the word hooker back then. Right. Yeah. And I said, well, are you going to go with me? And she said, yeah. So literally, I'm holding her hands because my knees are buckling and I'm walking down this alley at 8.39 o'clock in the morning with her holding my hand to this man's house. And I was so nervous. I mean, my heart could just, I could just feel that whole moment right now. And um, I got to the back door. We were there and she knocked at the door and he opens the door and she had let my hand go and I was looking at him. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this guy's like my dad's age. He looks like my dad, you know, and... Um, and he grabs my hand and I look over and she was already walking away and he pulls me in. And that was the first time um, that was the beginning of the downward spiral for my life. Because um, even though <laughs> everything that happened, I, I, I did, I was such a child. I was such a child in my brain that I really believe she still needed this money and she had no idea what this guy did to me. I went back and I told her, I'm crying. And she goes, what's wrong? And I'm, tell yeah, I'm telling everything. And she goes, oh my God, she embraces me. She's like, that'll never happen again, ever. Here, have a drink. 
And on that moment, um, I'm drinking some white liquor on an empty stomach. Not shortly after I'm throwing my guts up. And then she introduces me to free basin cocaine. And from then on, she was like the puppet master until that day she disappeared. But at that point, I was already stuck in my mind. I still sometimes stand in the mirror amazed. Mm. Um, Because I know people that have dealt with that, you know, have experienced not even a fraction of what I've experienced. And they're still extremely broken. Um, And they're just living a life and, you know, it's downward. Right. In the spiral. And I'm like, wow. Okay, God. You know, it's all God. Because honestly, you know, I couldn't do it in my own strength. I couldn't smile. I couldn't go day to day. I couldn't engage with people. It's a lot of things that I could not do um, have it not have been for the Lord. And that's just the truth. In number 11, Healing from Infidelity, Trey Carney offers healing help for people who have committed adultery people who are victims of adultery, people facing divorce, and people wanting to build strong relationships. And she should know, she transparently admits to committing adultery and being a victim of it. Um, Well, I got here by way of committing adultery. So um, I was met in a marriage and, uh, you know, time wasn't being spent. My ex-husband is a, was a workaholic and still is a workaholic, but I was a very young bride. So I really didn't know how to communicate to him that I wasn't really getting the things that I need. So someone came in that crack in the door and paid attention and gave me attention and gave me some fun, some time. And it just snowballed out of effect to where I left my home with my children. The man who I left to be with was married. He left his home from his wife and children. And it was just a devastating time as we got into it because it's all fun and games until you're in a home together and the responsibilities start to kick in. It's all fun and games to when it's not just fun anymore because we were just really having fun. We had a whole nother life going on and it just was so devastating toward the end for my children, his children, my family, my ex-husband's family, his family, his ex-wife's family, it just caused so much um, drama. It just caused, it destroyed legacies, it destroyed families, it destroyed relationships, because a lot of times people don't understand the trickle down of infidelity. It just not, it does not just affect the husband and the wife and the person who's cheating. It affects people who loved my ex-husband for my family. I connected these people. We we formed bonds with these people. His family connected with her family, and it just disrupted so much. Infidelity is so disruptive. It destroys legacies. It destroys generations. And if only I had just said no to somebody else's husband and yes to mine and just been mature enough to to do that. And I don't blame myself because I was in an immature state. I got married when I was 21. I had really never experienced life on my own. So when things didn't go my way, I just did what I thought was best for me. When I was in therapy, the therapist called that dish piling. Nothing gets solved if you keep piling dishes on top of a problem. Well, you did this and then you did that. Well, you did this and then you did that. No. Nobody's listening. No, we have to stay on topic. If I come to you, Beverly, you didn't have a problem with me until I came to you and said I had a problem. And that is not effective communication. Communication is a skill. And sometimes it's underdeveloped in a lot of us. And we have to learn how to communicate. We have to learn what type of communicator we are. You may be a passive communicator. I may be aggressive. I'm going to eat you up if you don't know the type of communicators. But if you know about passive, passive, aggressive, assertive, 
you know how to deal with the people on your job and in your house. But if you don't know these things, because people think when you say communication, it's Trey talking and Beverly listening. It's Beverly talking and Trey listening. No, there's styles and types of communication. Right. We have to know about these things and we have to build these things. And we have to unlearn some forms of communication. Because if you came from a place where people in your home were just yelling and screaming, that's normal to you. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a trigger for some of us. you know. So we have to be mindful of how to communicate and what communication does to certain people. You, you can kick and scream if you want, but until you stop pointing that way and start looking inside of what you need and who you are, you're not going to get to where you want to be. And you can be, do, and go anywhere you want once you internally know who you are and you are a whole person and you take responsibility for your actions and you will become better because you are where you are based on your choices. If you don't like where you are, make better choices. At number 10. Cairo Communications Black History app. I talked to the creators of the app called Black History that educates people in a fun way about overlooked facts and contributions of black people. This was a fun episode where I got to test my knowledge and I hope you did too. What practice occurs when a lender or insurer targets minority consumers not to deny residents loans or insurance but rather to extend credit or unfair or unfair terms in specific neighborhoods based on the resident's race or ethnicity. So A, predatory lending, B, BIOS redlining, C, reverse redlining, or D, high cost mortgage funding. Oh, wow. Now I'm thinking more than two. C. <laughs> reverse redlining, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Wow. That is good. That does. It really makes you think. It really makes you. And that's really the goal, just to have people think about it, increase their knowledge, and hopefully expand their views about African-Americans and our journey. Okay. Give me one in the individual category. Let me see. Individual. Who was the first African-American woman to go to space as a crew member of the shuttle Endeavor in 1992? So A, Jane Hinton, B, Alfreda Johnson, C, Helen Octavia Dickens, D, Dr. Mae Jameson. D. Okay. Mae Jameson. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I got my Pfizer vaccine and booster shot. But when we did number nine, the COVID-19 vaccine, should you get it? I had not because I wasn't eligible yet. And I had already contracted coronavirus. During this podcast, Dr. Kevin Izzard gave the pros and cons of getting the vaccine. We talked about the hesitancy of getting the shot and whether a booster shot would be needed in the future. I can listen to this now and see that his predictions came true. I actually, I did. And, and I'm going to tell you, I, like a lot of your listeners, I was skeptical at first. Mm-hmm. Um, if you asked me, you know, back, uh, you know, when they announced Operation Warp Speed back in May, it was mid-May, I was very skeptical because I thought that it was very politicized. And, you know, if you ask me, well, would the government put out a vaccine just for the sake of having one? And I was at, at that time, I thought, yeah, they would. And probably they would. <laughs> um, but 
since that time, um, it has become less politicized. And part of that is because of administration change. Uh, some of that is because uh, I think Dr. Fauci, Anthony Fauci kind of went more out on the limb to, uh, you know, to, to try to make sure that he was sticking with facts and, and not spin and took a lot of heat from the administrative administration for that. But um, I felt that he was, uh, as best he could, was, was being straightforward. Um, I think the CDC um, and the FDA got a lot of pressure from the medical community to make sure that that, that they were being straight. And uh, because not only was was this vaccine at risk, but all vaccines are at risk. There are a lot of people out there who don't trust vaccines, anti-vaxxers. And if we mess this up, it's going to affect any other vaccine. So if people stop getting COVID vaccine, they might not get their, you know, their, their childhood vaccinations and things like that. So there's a lot of pressure. And so when the time came, I looked at the risks and benefits. I decided that um, being an African-American male, overweight, uh, mild high blood pressure, my risk of having a complication outweighed the risk of taking the vaccine. The vaccine, as far as we can tell, has been uh, you know, pretty, pretty clean. You know, mm-hmm. As far as uh, side effects, there are people that have allergy, have allergic reactions, but that's to any vaccine or actually any medication. The uh, the idea that I'm in healthcare, yeah, and you know that uh, someone's going to have to take the the chance with this thing. You know, it's a new vaccine. We don't know all the all the risks and side effects. Um, so someone's going to have to be the guinea pigs. And you know, as as a physician, um, you know, I should be willing to, to, to take that chance because I think people need to understand what they're doing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, um, this is not in any way to dissuade people or say that it's not worth getting the vaccine. But if you do get it, you should understand. You know, I don't want people going around thinking, "Oh, I got the vaccine, I'm good for life," because that's probably not going to be the case. Especially now that we're getting these, uh, you know, these mutant viruses, what we call variants. Um, you know, what we're getting right now, a year from now, may be a different virus. You know, and. and yeah. Some ways, and it's not a totally different virus, but you know there are going to be different. The spike proteins going to be a little different, and because of that, your immune system is going to react to it not as effectively as it is now. In number eight, civil liberties and Derek Chauvin, after he was convicted of murdering George Floyd, was the topic. This was a conversation with attorneys James Santel and Lynette McNeely just before the sentencing of Chauvin. I asked the question. After all is said and done in this case, what's next? Now, the, the concern I have, though, um, even with with the trial, uh, even having the trial, and now seeking an appeal, is um, the trauma that is causing in, in the communities. Again, not only did we hear and learn about what uh, happened to Mr. George Floyd, but now we get to watch it on the video and we had a full trial where details were brought out right. and there seems to have been um, more trauma introduced because of Derek Chauvin's behavior. And then to actually ask for another trial, it just seems like there's, there's additional um, impacts that, that that could possibly have. And, and the defense doesn't seem to have, um, you know, in, in the inter- they do have to defend their client, I understand. But then there's also a trial strategy that should be considered a community strategy. Uh, how is that going to impact other people? What's for the good of the state, too, it should, I think, is some things that 
uh, I know I would consider um, when I'm defending clients. And I think in this case, in the interest of I mean, everyone, you know, healing from this, um, the question is, do we really need another trial? I mean, what, what can they negotiate so that we can put this to rest and start healing as a nation? And we know their names and they've got faces and they've got lives. We know it's not just Daniela Frazier, uh, but we know their names. It's Donald Williams, it's uh, Charles McMillan, it's Courtney Ross, all these people who told this incredibly human story and again, turning a, a horrific tragedy into something that America can grow from, which is, I think, the purpose of our discussion here this morning. Isn't that one of the great lessons of this, the involvement of human beings who describe, as you just said, Beverly, and implicit in Lynette's good comments of just a few moments ago, this notion that this is not, yes, first and foremost, an horrific death of an American citizen, our colleague, our friend, our, our partner in life here. And, um, but beyond that, also this incredible impact upon people. And how do we know that? Look at what they said, look at how they behaved on the stand, and look at what a compelling statement they made about the involvement of human beings, Americans in the 21st century in our mm -hmm. justice process. That is reassuring to me, candidly, even again, in the midst of this horrific tragedy. Doesn't matter if you are passing a $20 counterfeit bill or you're a banker. Doesn't matter if you are uh, have a prior drug addiction that you're wrestling with, or you're in counsel or counselor, um, as she just said, um, you're a citizen of the United States of America. From a purely legal standpoint, to respond to your question, Beverly, I remember watching this and thinking, gosh, why should this be relevant? And could you make a motion, frankly, against the prosecution? Again, I would have done exactly what the prosecution done did for all the reasons Lynette just identified. But you think about it from a purely legal shouldn't be relevant in 2021, what your history is. There's nothing about the proof needed under a second degree, third degree, or manslaughter charge that requires proof of who the victim is. Right. You need to know is what Lynette just described. You're a human being. You're a citizen of this country. You deserve life. And frankly, even the federal charges, I suspect we'll talk about, talk about that deprivation of life and do not qualify that based upon who you are, what you've done, what, what things have happened in your life, good, bad, and different. The countdown continues next week when we'll highlight the seven most popular episodes of the 411 Live in 2021. I hope you'll join us. Until then, I'm Beverly Taylor, and this is the 411 Live. Real people, real talk. If you would like to check out past episodes, there are many ways. Go to your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Like and watch us on Facebook. Watch and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, go to our website, the411live.org.